Lives of the Unconscious. Tales of Therapy. Alex, Part Two. The Lost Self. It is autumn, 2018. About a year and a half since the beginning of therapy, our meetings now take place three times a week. Thus far, therapeutic work has helped Alex to find a little more room for his own thoughts and feelings, allowing him to reflect on his own experiences with a bit more distance, no longer entirely fixated on physical symptoms. Although there continues to be frequent crises and anxiety attacks. Nevertheless, with increasing frequency, it becomes possible during our sessions to talk about the meaning of a symptom, to produce something like a meaningful psychic entity, psychoanalytically speaking, a so-called alpha element. That means, whereas before there was only some chaotic something haunting the mind, threatening to drive him crazy. Now a meaningful and emotionally comprehensive connection was emerging. A has to do with B. Alex still needs my help to establish such connections, but he can also make something of my interventions, can work with them, which at the beginning of therapy was only possible to a very limited extent. His life story and his family relationships also begin in this context to take shape, to become something more than just. Some story from the past. As in one session, he tells me about being overcome by one of his states on the previous day, a strong feeling of trepidation. His chest became constricted, his throat tight. Anxiety rose up. I ask, was this feeling related to anything that happened that day? Alex thinks and says, as he often does, "No, I can't think of anything." A feeling of stillness and bewildering emptiness ensues. I say, "Can you say a bit more? What did you do that day, Alex?" Hmm. I went to work, then went home, made myself something to eat, watched TV with my girlfriend, then I went to sleep. I don't know.、Hmm. There was nothing really. It is as if we are staring at a wall. The subject changes before we can find anything more tangible. Later in the conversation, Alex tells in passing about a phone call with his brother. He had argued with him about the blackberry bushes on their land. During the session, Alex recounts this like an afterthought, but something about it catches my attention. I ask, "What piece of land, Alex? Something my parents bought here in the country." There's actually nothing important on it, but we haven't decided what to do with it. My parents have left it to us brothers, with this idea that says we all have the same share and the same voting rights. Everything that happens on the land, we have to vote about it together. Yesterday it was about the blackberry bushes, who was going to remove them. My brother said I'm lazy, I should help, but I already do a lot. I built a fence the other day. Me. So actually, you were quite annoyed yesterday. 
Alex, more vehement, not only yesterday. There are always fights, always because of this goddamn property. Alex uses a Russian swear word. Alex complains about his brothers for causing a mess in the management of the property. He says the brothers are all very different, with very different personalities. I say, but there is an agreement that forces them together, makes them dependent on each other. On their parents' soil, they have to stay together. That may be what causes all the trouble in the first place. It is becoming increasingly clear that the brothers are inextricably bound together under the spell of parental inheritance. There are a few things they will inherit, a house and an apartment. All of them are afraid of being pitted against each other by the other brothers. Once, Alex says, he wanted to rid himself of the piece of land and sell his part, but his father threatened, You don't respect your parents' inheritance. If you don't look after it, you won't get anything. To me, the family resembles a kind of tribe, large, quarrelsome, and at the same time bound by a pledge, with relationships that are not entirely clear to me. There are arrangements and alliances. The close ties seem to extend all the way to the nephews and cousins, and are at the same time highly conflict-ridden. Some family relationships seem shaped by outright hostility, and yet still contact is always maintained all the same. However, expressing anger or actually distancing oneself seems equally fraught. Each one is dependent on the other, afraid they will be played. Most of all, it seems the brothers are terrified of losing their parents' favor and thus being excluded or considered a traitor who rejects his family. I say, your feelings of trepidation may have to do with your anger over the piece of land, but it's a stifled anger. Alex is silent, then after a while says, a lot of anger. Alex comes across almost a little threatening as he says this, a bit absent-minded and spaced out. I say, but this anger scares you. You told me, if you drink alcohol, the anger is released, and then it gets out of control. Alex, I already destroyed a friendship with a buddy after a drunken night, when I smashed two chairs in a bar. I don't drink anymore. I haven't touched a drop in a year. The last time, my girlfriend said she had no more patience for that anymore. It only creates problems. When I drink, I ruin everything. Me. If your anger is released, then you smash the world into rubble. Friendships, your family, yourself. That's why you don't release it. But it is still there. I think, here too, maybe Alex also hasn't had a drink in a year and a half since the beginning of therapy so as not to jeopardize our relationship, which has become so valuable to him. When I ask, Alex talks about his childhood and youth in detail like never before. Together, we construct a part of his history. He relates fragmentary memories from his childhood, his time in Russia, and the border region that today is part of Kazakhstan. Russia comes across a bit like an imaginary place in his description, as if from a fairy tale, not from his own life. His few memories of the time are nice. 
His parents were both teachers at the school in a small town, and he spent a lot of time with his grandparents. His parents were always quite strict. They made sure that he did well in school, and he also did gymnastics from an early age. In the family, German and Russian were spoken interchangeably, but only Russian when they were in public or had visitors. At school, there were groups of Germans, Russians, and Cossacks. Even before the fall of the Soviet Union, there was some harassment. Still, he said, he had good friends and a teacher he liked very much. With the end of the Soviet Union, the family lost everything. Alex says, with the collapse of the central state and the flare-up of nationalism, the situation was very difficult. The Cossacks robbed them. Alex says, took away their house, even their passports. In the early 1990s, the family managed to get to Germany via complicated detours. Alex was at that time ten years old. I imagined to myself how a ten-year-old experiences such turmoil, the collapse of his previous world. Perhaps such an experience gives rise to the feeling that something very dangerous must lie beyond normality. One's own world, even if it seems stable, is threatened by collapse. Here is the connection to the panic symptom. Life doesn't rest on a solid foundation. Even his parents, who in childhood should represent those unalterable protective powers called normality, can be overpowered and left ultimately helpless. In the old homeland, Alex had two dogs he grew up with and loved very much, Boris and Irina, but he had to leave them behind. When I ask if he knew what had become of them, Alex says, "I don't know. Papa took them away the day we left. I couldn't say goodbye. Maybe he thought it would be easier for me that way." He said, "They are with the neighbors now, but I don't know if that's true." Maybe he just abandoned them or shot them. I am startled and feel goosebumps rising on my arm. I say, "Shot, Alex? I don't know. I don't think so. My father also really liked the dogs, but maybe that would have been better for them." Me, you say that so detached, but they were your beloved dogs, Alex. Yes, but that's how it was. We couldn't take them with us. Me. And there wasn't even an opportunity to say goodbye and mourn. Alex sighs, and a long silence ensues. Alex, I don't think I've thought about the dogs ever since. I was just thinking, if they're with the neighbors, are they still alive? But it's been so long. Dogs don't get that old. They must have died long ago. Once again, there is a silence, long and sad. I think, at the same time. The beloved dogs are a symbol of Alex himself, his identity, his childhood. Everything was cut off all at once by a sudden violence. There is no time for transition, for saying goodbye, for mourning. A piece of his own identity was left behind, the dogs, but also the boy Alexei. And in his imagination, again here the violence. It is perhaps best that this piece of his history. This piece of himself be left to fend for itself or be shot, because it has no place any more in this world, no home where it belongs. In Alex's silence, I say, 
It's all so incredibly sad. Alex nods and says, Actually, it is. I get the feeling he is really sad about his memory. But it is almost too much sadness. Something overwhelming is always threateningly close. In our next few meetings, Alex continues to tell his story. The beginning in Germany was also difficult for him. There were problems getting degrees recognized. His parents had to pursue a profession below their qualifications in Russia. Ever since, Alex has known his parents as embittered, strict, even stricter than in Russia, and unhappy in a way that is difficult to grasp. However, feelings were not talked about at home. His father worked a lot, his mother as well, and also took care of the children in the time that remained. Evidently with a strict hand, always concerned that the children develop well, study for a good career. I say, and maybe you had the feeling you had to give that to your parents, develop well, couldn't disappoint them, so that they don't become even more unhappy. Alex, that was just normal. There was no question at all whether you want it or not. Already at an early age, great pressure weighed on Alex and his brothers to be successful. Not in the sense of a flashy career. That, too, would be not normal. But rather in terms of a career with high social standing. A good job, good money, a house of one's own, being efficient, just being somebody in society at all. In the words of Alex, that was possible with math, music, and sports. But if I didn't toe the line, beatings. Here emerges that reoccurring reference to normal, and not for the first time during the treatment. Not to be normal means being an outsider, a newcomer to Germany, a pitiful creature, a Ruski, with no natural right to respect, who must earn and fight for it over and over. In Russia, Alex says, we were Germans. In Germany, we are Russians. And in either case, the other was somehow not acceptable. I say, so, somehow, always different, never quite belonging. Your parents wanted to finally put that behind them. That's what that represents, a good job, well-developed. Being abnormal, standing out, that's a horror scenario in the family. Their extremely rigid parenting is driven by an almost panicked fear of social decline. With great effort, the family indeed manages to gain a foothold in Germany. Alex has to learn an instrument, even though he doesn't enjoy it, does competitive sports, studies diligently at school. A bad grade, a missed practice, trouble with a teacher, this is all seen by the parents as an attack on their hard-earned normality and fills them with fear that their child could fail, causing them to respond with punishments, scolding, slapping. Alex has the feeling his parents always take sides with the authorities, teachers, directors, even when they have treated him unfairly. I say, maybe for your parents it isn't about justice, but rather about not stepping out of line, not failing not slipping away from them, or else disaster could threaten. They had to conform to the circumstances, no matter what it did to them. But there must have been such rage, 
and how alone all of you were. Alex, honestly, this is the first time I've really thought about what that was like for me. At the time, that's just how it was. Me. But it all had to go somewhere. There are some family members who are in fact struggling with their demons, who are slipping away, unable to function any longer. The family, as it is, doesn't correspond to some alleged normality. A close relative slipped into drug addiction and eventually schizophrenia. Another family member became an alcoholic. And yet another ended up in prison for a while. The family compensates for all the failings, concealing illnesses and abnormalities, while at the same time, everyone is terrified of this fate. Sent off to the psychiatric ward. My gaffe at the beginning of the therapy thus means the family's greatest fear rendered true, now overtaking Alex too. Mentally ill means the threat of total breakdown, being broken, but also remaining forever entangled in the family, becoming totally dependent. Perhaps this is a fear that is in fact quite justified, leaving home, independence, stability, and being successful do not have a solid foundation, but rather are built on relations of force, coercion he wields against himself, internalized already at an early age. The organization of the self is based not so much on love but on achievement. He forces himself to function, to do math, music, and sports. And that only works if he ignores his own feelings and doesn't think about how he's actually doing. And if not, then there will be beatings. Also, in the metaphorical sense, beatings against himself. In this context, I offer an interpretation. What you have experienced in your family, you have also done to yourself, but a part of you is angry. Making the connection, Alex says, that comes out when I have been drinking. Me. Yes, that's when it comes. During the next period of therapy, Alex deals with this anger. It is now a little easier to address has at least become tangible to him, without having to erupt immediately in violence, as in his alcoholic episodes. Like the anger that overcomes him when he thinks back on his parents invading his apartment, just like that, when he didn't open the door. Alex, it's not okay. They can't just walk in on me like that. My girlfriend realized it right away. Even then, she just lost her head. At the same time, this anger continues to be restrained by his feelings of guilt towards his parents. It is difficult for him to tell his parents, for instance, that they can no longer just come in unannounced. If it wasn't for my parents, I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't even have the apartment they're trying to force their way into. It becomes clear that Alex believes not only that he lives parasitically off his parents, as his brother put it, but also that his mother and father, who have lost everything, including their homeland, cannot have their own sons shipped away as well. So he gives in, continues to live with his parents for a long time, is a good son, in the hope of making his parents happy. When he manages to make it clear what he wants, he is quickly overcome by fears that the family ties might be broken. 
that he might have destroyed the family or that he might be disowned. Indeed, after a conflict, silence often lasts for days in Alex's family until finally someone resumes contact by simply acting as if nothing had ever happened. Although there is little real emotional contact, Alex is very attached to his parents, with one foot always still on the crib, as it were, at least unconsciously. The bond is not only formed by guilt, but also by longing. I think it is difficult to break away from one's parents, step out of the role of a child, especially when there is still great unfulfilled longing. It is as if Alex keeps racing up to his parents over and over, trying hard to finally be seen, to be recognized, loved for his true self, and every time keeps running against a wall or must be satisfied with some crumbs of recognition. I say, you are searching for the parents you so long for, and time and again you are let down. Or maybe it is also a quest for the lost parents. Before they were so saddened and tormented, the ones who remained behind in his old life with the dogs and with the boy Alexei. This furious racing up to his parents would then also be an attempt to regain something lost, destroyed, something that even his parents can no longer give him, something that the parents themselves have lost. In his fury, there ultimately rages a desperate, unredeemed grief. Alex still finds it difficult to regulate his anger. That is, not just shutting it down ruthlessly or letting it inundate him like a dam break in which he loses control. And still, he is now developing a feeling in general for the situations and connections that can activate the rage inside. As a result, he is also able to distance himself better. This is also evident in other areas of his life, as in his relationship with his girlfriend. After an argument in which he felt he had been wronged, he spoke openly about his feelings. Instead of withdrawing, keeping quiet, and playing video games on his PlayStation, as he had always done in the past. To his surprise, his girlfriend reacted with concern, and the two had an intense discussion. Alex. Afterwards, I didn't have the feeling that I had broken something, but rather the other way around. We fixed something. That was good. Alex talks about his early days at school. There he was rather marginalized, was ashamed of his Russian accent. He struggled not to be seen as a Russian, kept his distance from a group of Russian-German boys, quickly trained himself to shed his Russian accent, mastering German in no time in both speaking and writing, absolutely flawless, as he said, nothing Russian about it anymore. When he tells this story, Alex looks proud, and it really is a remarkable achievement. All the same, a sadness spreads through me during his story. I imagine him as a boy, bright and clever, yet driven almost in a panic to hide, to cut off an essential, indeed, a very valuable part of himself, just so as not to stand out. Alex never became fully self-confident in school, was more of a tag-along, but, as Alex says, at least not a victim of bullying. I say, having feelings, that's like a weakness you can't afford. 
then you would have become a victim of bullying, although you might have been very frightened and very sad after leaving Russia. But if you had shed a tear over this, had grieved, who would have heard? A silence ensues, and Alex seems touched. His voice is different. As if from far away, he says, no one. As Alex says, even his mother followed the maxim, be strong, carry on, and when a child can't pull themselves together, can't be strong or sheds a tear, give them, to put it cynically, a slap to make him stronger. Alex describes his father as more sensitive, but also distant, basically also threatened by onsets of grief and depression, burying himself in work as a consequence. Alex seems to me in these years of his youth to be extremely lonely. However, there is no room for sadness and tears, for longing and weakness. With clenched teeth, he had to fight on. The whole family tried to shed its past in order to arrive in the present, perhaps also in order not to have to feel all the pain, a pain in which the silhouette of the family's history has begun emerging, reaching back much further. However, this will only take clear shape in the later course of treatment and under the pressure of external events. In Alex's psychological self-organization, there is an almost impossible, overwhelming demand to bring all feelings under control, to get a grip on what makes him weak, a demand that can perhaps only be met at the price of psychosomatic symptoms and at the same time at the price of fear, for behind the control of feelings an inferno lurks. The suppressed rage, the boundless loneliness that cannot develop into mourning, and instead threatens to solidify into depression. Something unfathomable stirred in Alex during his first years in Germany. At some moments before falling asleep, but also in the hallway at school, he would hear voices in his head speaking Russian, as if from his old classmates, calling his name, Alexei, Alexei, startling him. Me. As if your old self had woken up and called you by name. But this is something that frightens you, 
the old you, Alexei, the boy from Russia, was already locked deep down in the cellar of your soul. In the cellar of the soul, this becomes a metaphor that Alex falls back on again and again, a figure of speech, the first in therapy truly saturated with emotional meaning. Alex reports about his sadistic, aggressive side. In his adolescence, he tortured animals, actively participated in the bullying of a boy, a Russian-German from Kyrgyzstan who joined his class a year after him and couldn't stand up for himself, something he is ashamed of today. I am the first person he tells this to, and for me, the stories are also difficult to take. What happened back then in the reality of Alex's life appears to have been true, and in the cellar of his soul certainly still is. It is a world of violence, in which only those who trample over others survive. Only those who assert themselves, who stand on the side of the strong. If he puts down another immigrant child, then he is no longer an outsider himself, could finally belong. Nowhere does understanding seem possible. Feelings and insecurities are signs of weakness, for which he is immediately attacked by others and for which he also attacks himself, becoming a perpetrator in order to avoid being a victim. The experience of one's own violent history is repeated, this time inflicted on another. I say, you did to your classmate what you feared would be done to you, to be put down, humiliated, tortured. Alex says sadly, I can't even say that I only did it out of fear. It was a good feeling. It felt like being on drugs, having power over someone. It gives you strength. But there was also hate, so much hate. I could have slammed him against the wall over and over again. I don't know why he didn't do anything to me. Me. A hatred for everything weak, to eradicate what is weak. For that, the other had to suffer, so that you didn't have to feel like the boy who is sad, afraid, lonely. But ultimately, it was self-hatred of the boy who is in you, even today. But I don't know him anymore. He's a stranger to me, Alex says, a statement that saddens me. But somewhere in him, this part must also be present. The attempt to eradicate doesn't really work for Alex. Otherwise, he would probably never have come to therapy, or at least wouldn't have committed himself to such a long process of understanding. Alex does not appear hypermasculine or violent, but rather fragile, vulnerable, affectionate. He is relieved to talk about these things. Also, that I don't turn away from him in disgust when he tells me about his violent side but also without minimizing things. For instance, by reassuringly saying, that wasn't so bad, which would be nothing more than an attempt to avoid what is difficult to bear. This phase of therapy is about a kind of sincerity in listening, something that Alex can now tolerate much better than at the beginning of treatment. No false reassurances, no sugarcoating things, but also to develop an understanding for him and his family. Why did he feel the way he did? 
and what of this is still retained in his experience today. Over the course of puberty, Alex finally found stability in being able to be successful, doing well in school, playing sports. During this period, there was a struggle to find his masculine identity, something he could only imagine in the form of physical strength, detachment, and coolness. An ideal, however, he never quite achieved, and as a result, tended to withdraw from contact with girls, only having his first sexual experiences much later. During this time, his relationship with his mother was, on the one hand, something hard and merciless. At the same time, the bond was very close, his mother very caring, protective, even downright self-sacrificing for her children. His mother, together with an aunt who also lived in the house, took over the essential tasks of his everyday life, in part still today, cooking, washing, cleaning for him, choosing his clothing, while his father took care of his business affairs, insurances, taxes, even far into adulthood. But only at first glance was this arrangement an all-inclusive paradise. To this day, the feminine, maternal caregiver still has something quite alluring, but at the same time, also threatening. Something into which his masculine identity threatens to sink again and again reducing him to a dependent bundle, an object of care. There is nothing worse than when he finds himself in this position. For example, when he has a cold and can't get out of bed, a state that goes hand in hand with depressive symptoms, defeat, feelings of worthlessness, of being lost. To this day, he experiences his sexuality as being restricted, only satisfying in a particular way to be at the mercy of the feminine, to surrender oneself to pleasure, is threatening. On the contrary, he can feel sexual pleasure above all when the woman is in a passive position, subjugated, for example, in certain pornographic representations. His girlfriend, however, tends to be dominant. He refrains from sharing his desires and fantasies with her, and is afraid of her lust at the same time often feigning tiredness when she makes advances in the evening. Even so, through discussing and working on this in therapy, he has managed to create a little more leeway here. In general, his growing awareness that masculinity and feelings do not have to be contradictions has helped him to gain more insight into his own desire and body. His fear of sexual intimacy, his shyness, ultimately reinforced his loneliness throughout his youth and early adulthood. He longed for a relationship, but at the same time retreated from any long-term love relationships that formed. For a long time, he could only bear brief affairs that remained emotionally non-committal, that did not put him at risk of being entangled. I say, to be in a relationship, that means to be seen a great desire, but also a great fear, maybe also here. But our transference and counter-transference dynamics, his love and longing towards me, cannot be openly discussed at this point, is perhaps rather something that passes unspoken in the treatment. I, a man, to whom he shows his feelings without me belittling him or smothering him with care, but also 
a man who talks about feelings, who may have feelings of his own, and is still a man. But I am also someone who brings him into contact with his feelings, which is always something very precarious for Alex. I can quickly become a persecutor with my interpretations and attempts to understand, presumably someone trying to get him in his weak spot. Since his youth, Alex has had to fight for his independence. If he did something different than what his parents expected, there were immediate conflicts. If he picked a different cell phone contract than the one his parents selected, they panicked, bombarding him almost to the point of aggression, sending him messages about the new provider's alleged scams, hacker attacks, and similar things. To some extent, it's still true today. As Alex says, it's really crazy. His parents only calm down once he does exactly what they say. I say, anything outside their family that doesn't come from their family is for your parents a threat, and it is difficult for you to escape this feeling. At the same time, it occurs to me that this scene is an illustration of the relationship dynamic between Alex and his parents. In fact, his parents are themselves full of anxiety, panic, unprocessed feelings, psychoanalytically speaking, beta elements, and are forcing their fears into Alex by assailing him with messages, whereby Alex is supposed to calm his parents by conforming entirely to their wishes. I imagine that this is also how their relationship formed in his childhood, and I begin to understand why it is difficult for Alex to gain reassurance from relationships. You can't reassure yourself if the other person is full of fear and undigested affects, and this is especially true for children. At the end of the first year of our work together, Alex has increasingly stabilized himself, even finding more leeway in how he shapes his relationships. Even his symptoms, his psychological suffering, no longer float in a void, as it were, but can be felt in connection with his history. In general, Alex begins to accept his history, to grapple with it for the first time, which also helps him to better understand his present situation. Becoming aware does not simply mean knowing his history, but rather being more able to balance his inner conflicts, having greater flexibility in dealing with his own feelings, desires, and boundaries, and, last but not least, rediscovering a piece of the lost self that has long been raging in the basement. An essential step in therapy has been taken. However, there is something that we do not yet foresee at this point, the end of 2019. A social crisis is on the horizon, and it will affect the process of therapy, but will also force open a door in Alex's family history that finally allows us to fully make sense of the extent of his unresolved anxiety. But we will hear more about that in the coming week.